You're listening to Main Character Energy, a podcast that'll teach you how to become that bitch. Main Character Energy gives you a behind the scenes look at how some of the world's most impactful disruptors, innovators, and creatives came from the bottom and embodied what it means to make it in all forms. Now, let's get into the show. So first and foremost, we got to talk about something. And that something is this Hello Alice Fearless Fund lawsuit situation. So if you're not familiar with Hello Alice, Hello Alice is an organization that is, I believe, Black woman run. And they basically give out grants to entrepreneurs and their focus, or they specifically have a lot of funding that is available to Black entrepreneurs, LGBTQ plus entrepreneurs, people who are U.S. veterans or family members of U.S. veterans. But a lot of this funding, yeah, is specifically for Black and brown folks who historically are excluded from a lot of this, you know, VC funding and, you know, access to capital conversation. And so for some reason, uh, there's a group of conservatives that served a lawsuit to Hello Alice And it's just another vicious attack on funding and programs that directly benefit Black people. And it's like saying the quiet part out loud. It's not even, it's not low, but it is something that I feel like is not totally talked about enough, especially after the same thing happened with Fearless Fund. If you're not, of course, like immediately in these circles, like I myself, I'm a business owner. I apply for these grants. I literally applied for a Hello Alice grant this week. So you know, of course I'm tapped in, but it's like over time, we are slowly getting these, these rights taken from us. And you would think that it, you know, this doesn't make sense, right? Because it can't be reversed racism because we already were not getting the same access as everybody else, but no, it's an attack on Hello Alice, a group that has created equitable programs to allow Black businesses to finally get the funding that we need. And it's just, yeah, it's just a really, really targeted attack to claim that, you know, this is a (laughs) affirmative action and discriminatory situation that Hello Alice is, is able to provide funding for such a neglected group. Black women, if you don't know, In this VC funding world and with all the billions of dollars that's being circulated, Black women get less than 1% of that funding, of this billions of dollars that a lot of businesses, a lot of non-Black folks are able to access less than 1%. And you know, the other crazy thing is Black women are the also the fasting growing group of entrepreneurs for years now. So I don't think it's any coincidence What I did think was absolutely insane was once I started to see this story circulating, there was a private networking group, private like professionals group that I'm in where, you know, some of the folks were sharing this information and talking about how ridiculous this is and how to fight back. And, you know, there's the audacity for certain non-Black folks to say that, you know, this is political it's irrelevant. It's something that needs to be discussed in private. Very privileged peers, because if this doesn't affect you, if you think this is irrelevant, you clearly live in a world where you don't have to care about 
diversity, inclusion, equity. Nobody around you, you don't have you, the company you keep is nobody who would be affected by that, right? And what a world to live in to think that this doesn't, it's not relevant, doesn't affect anybody. So I'm just here to say that I stand with Hello Alice. Elevate the American Dream is the grant and the movement uh, that they are putting forth to draw more attention to this because Black women, we are the American Dream. This is such a you know exciting time to be in this world where there's a lot more community amongst Black women entrepreneurs, and you know this is something that it, I love to see. I love to see people you know taking on new things, wanting to be also in like their prioritizing themselves soft life era. But I just want more for us when it comes to access to resources and funding. So I'm hoping that this is not a trend. And there's not so many attacks on organizations that specifically cater to us, but we'll have to see how that goes. In other news, it has definitely been the summer of Beyonce and it's officially come to an end. I think I'm grieving the end of the Renaissance tour because being able to see all of Beyonce's looks like on my timeline every day really gave me like the dopamine I needed to get through the day, to be honest. But this tour just ended. I did go see the last show in Kansas City. It was amazing. Blue Ivy is, I'm I'm the biggest fan. She's literally so talented, so incredible. I think I screamed the most just watching this girl and watching her and Beyonce together, like it gave me all the feels. And I definitely had a spiritual experience. I get why everyone said that, you know, they left that place feeling inspired. I totally did. I came back and was ready to kick ass, take names and figure out how I can turn my ideas into a cool $600 million like she did on this tour. And one other highlight of this tour that I thought was amazing. I mean, we won't go through, you know, the mute challenge, Kansas City. It wasn't happening with the Mute Challenge. We don't have to go there. But we'll go to my favorite moment, which is Meg the Stallion on the stage with Beyonce in Houston. I've never felt more connected. Like, I felt like those were my sisters up there <laughs> on the stage together. It was, like, so magical to watch them. And I just absolutely love to see Meg win. I'm so elated for Meg and, like, her bounce back and glow up after the whole Tory Lane situation, you know, she's thriving and she's never looked better. I'm glad to see her in good spirits. But yeah, she shared the stage with Beyonce on a legendary sold out stadium tour. So you really can't tell her shit right now. And also just talking about being on the right side of history. I'm seeing that there's even more... <laughs> Even more slander of Meg coming from Drake. And this is becoming this constant theme, right? Like the misogynists are out to play right now. Like, I, I don't know, like it's something in the water. I feel like it's like just they're going harder than ever. And this brand of like misogynistic incel, sad boy, bitter boy thing that Drake's doing is really off-putting. I think like I lost interest in any of Drake's pro uh, projects right after he was making jokes about Meg Thee Stallion getting shot. And I know that sounds maybe to you a little dramatic, but honestly, 
we've been seeing this trend kind of going on for a while. And it seems like now Drake has literally moved away from making his, you know, I'm a lover boy. I'm going to buy you purses. I am, you know, making songs for the girls and the gays, which was definitely his, the height of his career and what made people really get on board with, you know, Drake or what they thought Drake was. We don't know if Drake is anymore because he has morphed into every single other person besides himself. A little bit of an identity crisis. And now he's here straight up making music for douchebags. So feel very strongly about that. I don't think Meg is bothered, right? (laughs) Because she's clearly thriving. Again, it was a summer for the girls. I'll keep saying it over and over. And last thing I'll say about Renaissance is that, you know, this act two is, you found out is the movie, Renaissance the movie. And like only Beyonce can sell out whole stadiums and then movie theaters in the same year. And sell us $30 movie tickets. And we're like, yeah, okay. I mean, I saw the tour twice, but yeah, I'm going to go watch it. Only Beyonce. This week, I did see Jaja's African hair braiding on Broadway. It was an amazing show. If you're in New York, or if you're visiting New York, definitely go see it. It was so amazing. Basically, you know, I won't spoil, you know, of course, the plot of it and everything. But it, it, the the theme, it centers around... African family coming into Harlem as immigrants, you know, starting this business and just kind of like starting their new lives. But one thing that I thought was really cool about it is there's such nuance in the different cultures of, you know, Black Americans and then, you know, African immigrants and being in a hair salon, which we know, you know, if you're a woman, you know, is it's like a spiritual experience. Men know too, you know, it's like, the barbershop, the hair salon, these are community places. These are places where you're spilling tea. You are hearing like maybe some of the craziest stories. I feel like my hairstylist probably knows me better than anybody just because of all the time we spend together and all the time I spend in that chair. So it was really kind of cool to see that representation on the Broadway stage. They nailed it with the set design. Like it literally felt like you were on Fulton Street or 125th, getting your hair braided at the African hair spot. And it was hilarious. Shout out to the cast. It was so great. And I hope that you guys get a chance to check it out at some point. I heard that they extended it through November. So it's definitely a must see. Hello, and welcome back to Main Character Energy. Today, I have the legendary Chris G on the pod. I've been dying to have Chris G on the pod for a minute. Chris and I go way back. I'm actually wearing my Seton Hall t-shirt because (laughs) (laughs) alma mater. Um, So it's good to have a fellow pirate on, also fellow PR pro. Chris is a PR executive who's had just an incredible career diving into corporate communications and digital and everything in between. And also recently a fellow podcaster with the Deeper Than Color podcast. So before we dive into just all your latest and greatest, how was your summer? How was Martha's Vineyard? Summer was great. Martha's Vineyard was awesome. It's always awesome. Um, You know, so it was was great to be able to kind of like enjoy the wonderful weather, um, you know, just kind of detach and, and 
regenerate, right? You know, Um, and really get in touch with what's important. So thank you. Thank you for asking. I'm glad that that happened in August. I feel like we're slowly adopting like a European (laughs) summer and everyone kind of disconnected around the same time in August. So I was really happy to hear that you took some time off. But did you, are you familiar with with the Summer House Martha's Vineyard show? No. Oh my God, Chris, you would love it. So Summer House is this series on Bravo, and the original one is about um, a bunch of New Yorkers, like kind of like young professionals who then go out to the Hamptons every weekend. And it's just kind of showing them, you know, all their drama and stuff like that and like all their friends in this Hamptons house. And they did a new version spinoff with it's an all black cast in Martha's Vineyard. Um, And everyone's eating it up because it's amazing. And I'm just happy to see that type of representation and just the type of young black professionals on the show. I think you'd get into it. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. When you said yeah. Summer House, where my head first went, I'm a big Top Boy fan. So I started oh, thinking yeah. Top Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's so many good recommendations that you have, too. So we'll have to get into that at some point as well. But, you know, this episode, of course, is all about reinvention and, you know, pivoting, especially, you know, these last few years. We've all pivoted in one way or another, whether it's people, you know, of course, leaving corporate or finding, you know, completely new industries to go into or diving in and making their side hustles, full-time careers. So I want to hear a little bit about like your reinvention, even at the beginning of your journey, like what was it like kind of starting out as a creative and making your way up from there? Yeah, um, I think reinvention is the, is the, the word of the year and probably the word of the decade, especially in the age of AI. But um, really, it's been a through line for my entire career. The day I, you know, I graduated, um, I didn't, I'm actually not a Seton Hall uh, alum. I graduated from Uni- University of the Arts. I was a graphic design major. Um, you know, I, obviously, this is uh, way back uh, a while ago. So um, this is before the internet and everything. And then actually, it was before computers actually were really kind of popularized. So, I, you know, so I'm a little older than I look, black don't crack, thankfully. But essentially, the day I graduated from school with a degree in graphic design, my degree was obsolete. My graduation coincided with the desktop publishing revolution and where I had trained in college to learn how to do everything by hand, which is the way things were done, T-squares and drawing boards and all of those old things, right? And so when I graduated, the world was shifting to desktop computers and being able to do layouts and being able to do ads and things like that with computers. So, you know, I had to make a choice. Uh, I didn't have those skills. They didn't teach us that in college. So on my first job application, I lied and said that I knew how to use the computer. I wouldn't recommend that for anyone, but I had to do what I had to do. Times (laughs) are tough, right? (laughs) You know, I lied and said that I knew how to use it. I knew enough. I knew a little bit, right? But I knew more than the people who hired me. So I would just stay late every night and perfect, learn, learn how to use the program more effectively, all of that. And then I eventually pretty quickly became a pro at it. But, you know, I had to make a decision. Do I sort of like let myself be disrupted at the very beginning of my career and find something else to do? Or could I pivot and find some, acquire some additional skills that were going to make me more, more relevant and more employable? Um, so that was really helpful. But then I faced a similar pivot a few years later, when the, the sort of the dawn of the internet started to come and the desktop publishing revolution yielded to the dot-com bubble, and uh, everyone was interested in web skills and web design skills, and I was a print designer. So I went and Again. applied. 
yeah. So, you know, I went and applied to all these different web shops and agencies and everything, and none of them would touch me because they felt like, well, you know, you, you know, you're good at this print stuff, but you don't know how to do interactive and digital and web design. And I didn't accept that. So once again, I would just sort of taught myself. I would go to Barnes and Noble every weekend and gobble, gobble up all of the books on web design that I could. I took free assignments from friends and, and relatives and things like that just to build up my portfolio. Uh, and then eventually I got a couple of like freelance gigs and things like that where I could kind of uh, get paid to do some work. And it took about a good two years of working uh, on the side and sort of perfecting my skills on the weekends. But eventually, after a couple of years, I built up enough of a body of work and enough skill that an agency would hire me and gave me my first job as a, as a web designer. So, you know, it's just not taking no, constantly being curious seeing around corners and saying, okay, what, what are the things that are, that, you know, that are going to be in demand tomorrow versus today? And then figuring out how I could get myself to level up to that. This is something that you've been doing for years and this is how you started out. And I think that's great advice for people who are at that point now. And I totally misspoke because we met at Seton Hall and through the mentorship that you were able to provide me and my peers, I feel like it was a really incredible thing to kind of have that type of motivation and inspiration instilled at those early stages. So for anybody who's feeling like they're underqualified, just go for it. <laughs> just apply for the job because there's so many people who are technically underqualified and go for it anyway. So you have to kind of have the audacity, but follow it up with hard work. 100%. And I was reading someplace the other day, and I'm sure you've seen this stat before, that something like almost like 100%, like most women feel like they have to check the box on 100% of the uh, requirements for a job before they'll apply for it. Whereas most men will apply if, if we qualify for 60% of those requirements, right? And we it's just so figure, true. we'll figure it out. We'll figure out the other 40%. Um, but I think that like, you know, the reality is, and you, and you kind of touched on it, I've looked at some of the job descriptions for jobs that I've held and laughed at them because yeah. it's like, hey, I've been here in this role for two years, three years, and I don't, I don't have checked the box on some of these things, right? So it's like a wish list, right? So you're right. You have to go for it. You have to, you know, you certainly have to put in the work and you certainly have to constantly up level. But at a certain point, you, you just have to say, you know what, believe in yourself and bet on yourself. Absolutely. And that's why those stats don't lie. And that's why I always say have you know, I say this to other women, like have the audacity of a white male, because statistically, you know, just it's the mindset that we have sometimes where we're like, I, yeah. you know, I'm underqualified. I don't know. I have to think about it. But I just love that, that you've been kind of teaching yourself along the way. And I think that definitely is what stands apart in a lot of these situations with other people. So you had that moment where you kind of got to the point where you felt confident in your skill set. Tell me a little bit about just kind of like the different eras in your career that you had, because I know you've kind of dabbled in different structures and agencies, in-house, things like that. So walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, it's uh, that's a good question. So I, I came to New York. It's ironic because I'm the, the digital guy, right? But I came to New York to really kind of like with a print background, and I wanted to do print advertising. So the first job I got was at a uh, design studio, a small shop. I mean, I think we were like five or six people on Fifth Avenue. And that was sort of like the first iteration of my career at a small boutique agency. From there, I was there for a couple of years and um, I left there to go work for Time Warner. I took an in-house job uh, working there. That was interesting, but it wasn't super sustainable. Uh, the, the product that we were selling 
was, I think it was like mail order uh, VHS tapes. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so it was like very, very quickly, very, very quickly, not gonna, not gonna be very sustainable. So uh, I got laid off from that job, freelanced for a while, and then I ended up taking a job. The economy was really bad back then. It was a, we were in, a, in the midst of a really long recession, and so I ended up taking a job, real estate investment firm, and I worked in the the marketing department. So I did that, and I stayed there for for probably a little bit longer than I should have, about five or six years or so. And then from there, that's when I reinvented myself as a web designer and then went got back into the agency world, and I've been in the agency world ever since. So yeah, that's those kind of been the arc of my career. I know that's exciting. Like there's it's so cool to see that transition. And I've been, you know, following your journey, obviously, ever since we've connected and kind of seeing the different levels of, you know, the different eras, the different levels that you've reached. And now the expertise that you share and all of the insights and all the uh, inspiration that you're able to share about these different journeys the way that you're speaking about it online, specifically on LinkedIn, is getting a lot of traction, so much traction that I saw that you are actually a LinkedIn top thought leadership voice, which is so cool. And it makes so much sense because I think you pro- you provide a lot of value in all of the content that you put out. I love to see it. I get so excited to see you like sharing these parts of your journeys because I think we're definitely in that vulnerability, you know, we want the real deal era in like our social digital culture. So what, you know, what does it feel like to kind of be in that position now where you're a top voice? (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, thank you so much. Um, You you know how it is. It's like you create content and you never know how it's going to be received and what people are going to think about it. So I really appreciate, you know, especially coming from you, who this is the world you live in and we you're gotta an expert. We got to embrace so, it. We so got to embrace it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting for the past decade or so, you know, in, in the, in the senior digital sort of capacities that I've, that I've had and, and roles that I've had, one of the things that has been one of the biggest areas for the teams that I've led is, um, is executive thought leadership. And so I've spent a good part of the past decade counseling and leading and coaching CEOs and senior executives and, and et cetera from, from Fortune 500 companies to get out there and, and help them put together thought leadership program. But I really never really seriously did it myself, right? I was kind of like most people. I would kind of dabble here and there or whatever, mm-hmm. but I never really kind of like took it seriously, took my own yeah, advice. Yeah, yeah, that's always how it is. And especially when you're the behind the scenes yeah. person, you're focused on everybody else but yeah. you. Typically, that's right. That's right. And you know, and and you'll you'll be able to relate with this. But in the PR industry, you know, it kind of you're kind of it's kind of looked down upon. The number one of the number one things is you're not supposed to be the story, right? So so we're much more comfortable being the people on the side that kind of like I'm whispering into the guy's ear or the or the, the, the woman's ear and not necessarily being a person in Ooh, front. Speak so on it. that didn't necessarily come naturally, <laughs> yes. right? You know, it, it took a mental it, it was a mental hurdle to get over that, but ultimately it just kept bothering me that I wasn't practicing what I preached. And I remember thinking like, man, someday somebody is going to call me on my BS because it, I don't have to tell you, so, so you know, some, some executives you have to couch, you have to coach hard, right? Like, wait, why are you stuck? Look, we've, we've, we've come up with a content calendar for the next 60 days. You're saying we haven't reached your voice or we haven't nailed your voice and all this kind of stuff. You're saying it's not right, even though this is all stuff that ostensibly you said you want to do. And so at, at times I've had to pull folks aside and say, listen, what's really yeah. going on? 
you know, this it's is, this is up here, thing. Right? Absolutely. Yes. How do you work through those tough situations? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's just being able to relate with and tap into where the fear is coming from. And the fear is typically over the years coming from a certain universe of places, right? I'm going to look stupid. I mean, these are people who have spent a long time, blood, sweat, and tears building their career, getting to where, to where they've gotten to, and they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to undermine yeah. their credibility, right? So just being empathetic about that, the unknown, right? They've never done this before. They don't, they, they don't have a process. And so we're coming in and building a process, but it doesn't feel natural. These are people who are used to feeling very competent. They don't like feeling like they're not competent, exactly. right? It's, it's something that they have to kind of face. So they're on this journey yeah. that mentally they're trying to get there. And then you're there, you know, kind of also being their hype man and reminding them that they are this, they are this expert, that they are good at this. They, it's just not usually natural to be able to translate that online. At 100%. You know, it does take a leap. You know, so I think for, for, so just understanding all of those things and being sensitive and being empathetic to it helps a lot. Now, it doesn't always work. There have definitely been clients that have paid firms I've worked for tons of money every month, like significant retainers, and we didn't end up posting anything. It'd be like <laughs> you that. Know? <laughs> right. It's like, what can you and do? sometimes... Well, right. It's like, all right, well, look, I mean, you know, my job, my primary job as an executive is to bring in revenue. Yeah. And, I did, <laughs> so and I did my job and you, yeah, you know, you can't lead a horse to water type of thing. Like people have to also want it just as bad and that's all you can do. Yeah. And I think that's also part of the problem too, is that in some of those cases, it wasn't, I think it's one thing when it's the executive or leader who says, okay, I really have come to a point where I've decided this is important for me to do, whether it's for my career. Some of them, some of them, a couple of, some of them were CEOs who knew that, okay, I'm probably going to be, my contract's going to be up in a year. I'm probably going to be moving on and I want to move on to my next thing, whether it's, I want to be an author. I want to be a speaker. Uh, I want to get on boards or whatever it is. So they saw the value in positioning themselves. In others, it was like, hey, look, I want to I want to eye that top chair. I'm not a CEO, but I'm in the C-suite. You know, maybe I'm just below the C-suite and I want to position myself within my own company uh, to move up the ranks and everything. So when they have when it comes from them, it's a lot easier. But a lot of times we would be hired and it would be the board or we'd be working with senior executives and it was the CEO who said that they had to do it. And that person didn't have any interest. Oh yeah. Oh no. You have to, you have to want it in that situation. It's, it's, it gets very interesting with that, but I do relate so much to like wanting to talk the talk, walk the walk, practice what you preach and almost having a little bit of like, not, not, well, maybe it could be called imposter syndrome, but kind of looking at your own, uh, brand and thinking, you know, I'm teaching this to other executives, other clients, things like that. But I have to make sure that I'm also doing these things to not only like position myself and attract more customers, all, all of your personal goals, but also to show them what it looks like. Yep. So how did you right. start to, cause it's, you know, we know how the we know how this goes once you get serious about your content, which is so exciting. I have to just congratulate you again because it is such a journey. You have to really invest your time. You have to really be, you know, somewhat disciplined because you're showing up, you're being vulnerable, but you can easily burn out. And you can kind of work at it for a couple weeks and be really good, maybe for a month, and then never post again for, for a few weeks, even a few months. So how do you keep that sustainable social strategy? 
That's that's the greatest question because I think that's probably most people, right? I mean, yeah. um, on social media, I don't care what platform it is, we see people pop up, come out of the gates really strong with really compelling content, and then they just run out of gas. Uh, and I think the most important thing that I found is to have a process, right? Yeah. Build out your 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 topic areas, your the areas of expertise, or things that you. Well, first of all, it's knowing what it is I want to get out of this, right? So what I want, what do I want to get out of it? You know who you want to reach. If it's just I want to raise my profile, if I want to generate leads for my business, if I want to get speaking opportunities, get on podcasts or panels, whatever it might be, knowing what you want to get out of it, you start from there. Then you can figure out okay, who are the people that I need to reach, uh, and what's and what kind of content do I need to create that's going to compel them to yes. do some of those things that I want them to do. Whether it's like sign up for something or reach out to me about booking something, a speaking engagement, whatever it might be. Um, so that makes it a lot easier because it, it, it limits the universe of things that you might post, right? You yes, know that. Yes, yeah. And then also it, it kind of like forces you to be a little bit more disciplined. So that helps. So then you narrow it down to like, okay, based on what I'm trying to achieve and who I'm trying to reach, I've got these topic areas that resonate with those people. Uh, and then on top of that, you say, okay, here are some formats that I that I like and can consistently pull off and I think that's the key right right I mean like like if I if I can't consistently do video right and I say okay don't I'm gonna video. do it no don't don't do video <laughs> like you know it, or if that's I don't so like real. doing video yeah I, somebody reached out to me a few weeks ago and I was like I don't want to do video but I'm hearing it like it gets great engagement I'm like listen if you don't want to do video don't do video you don't have to no one's holding a gun to your head and saying do video like do what feels comfortable like if you're more of a you know it reminds me of just being a different type of learner like if yeah. you are someone who is you know likes to talk likes audio things like for example um some I do like to write but I love to speak. And so sometimes I'd rather channel things into obviously podcasts or what was it on LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn voices or mm-hmm. one of those Twitter products when you can actually, it's changed so many times. I can't even Spaces, think of the yep, current yeah. name of it. <laughs> yeah. There's so many iterations, but all of those types of things, I was almost going to say clubhouse, but we won't go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to do what feels like native to you, yeah. what feels comfortable even when I'm thinking about my content planning, I will send, I will like record voice notes to myself because I just know that's kind of a fast and easy way for me to like capture my ideas really quickly. So I totally get what you mean about not only finding what works for you, but also what I was hearing from you was the intentionality of it, like being super intentional about who you're reaching and sustaining it with something that you actually like to do. That's right. Because then it doesn't feel like work. Yes. That's the other thing. But I was also talking to, so I'm working with this one executive on her executive visibility, uh, particularly on LinkedIn. And initially it was a similar to, I don't know, I don't have, what am I going to talk about? I don't have anything to say. And as we got through the process, it was a similar thing to your voice notes. Now she's finding out she has all these things to say. So she'll be shopping or so, and she'll think about something. Oh, that'd be a great idea for a post. Or we'll just be in a conversation talking about something not even related to thought leadership and she'll say something really profound and she'll say, oh, I should make that a post, right? You know, you see me just beaming because as a service provider, there's nothing better than that breakthrough and seeing that in them. She's, she's visualizing it and working through it as a, an ecosystem. That's right. That's right. And, and then you go from like thinking you have nothing to say and thinking, oh my God, what am, how am I going to possibly come up with something to, to your point, having voice memos or an Evernote or a notion 
a file that is just filled with future ideas. So then when you do, when that content calendar does run dry or you, or, or, or you say, Hey, I had an idea to post something today, but I don't like, I don't like what I have scheduled for today or for tomorrow. You know, this thing seems a little bit more top of mind that I thought of a couple of weeks ago when I was, uh, you know, exercising or something like yeah. that. So having that reservoir just pays itself off in a number of different ways. And I think that like, we all have a lot of things that we have to say. Another thing that I've told a couple of people is like, go through your, your, your text messages, your group chats with Ooh, other friends, that's a great you know, idea. right? Yeah. Like, cause, because I, I find that like people are dispensing pearls of wisdom all the time. You know, their sayings all the time, whether it's to friends or family and et cetera. Uh, but they don't think about taking that and using it as pearls of wisdom that you could share on social. Yeah, because those are more like off the cuff, like your real thoughts and opinions. And I've actually done that with my journal entries. I've gone back and seen like, how was I feeling that day? What was what were my thoughts and opinions about this topic or this thing that I felt really passionate about at the time I was writing it? And then it does spark something when you and you now it like it's like turning on the faucet and all the ideas keep coming out and you're like on a roll. So it definitely takes that consistency to then make it not feel like work. And then get excited about it because you're like, oh, I'm going to post this. And I don't like that. Like you said, like being able to have that flexibility about what you'd rather post. And that's like the best feeling. But I know that you've also talked a lot about how AI tools have helped you. So do you incorporate that into your systems as well? Absolutely. I consider AI to be a great co-pilot. I always tell people don't take anything directly out of AI. First of all, Thank it's you. not that great. Thank yeah, you. it's not that good. Uh, in ter- I mean, it's great. At, it's fantastic at a lot of things, but it's not great at being creative. And so I, I look at it and say it's a great tool for generating first drafts. A lot of times, what I'll do is is I'll just kind of like compose my thoughts. I, I do. I I prompt AI a lot for my thought leadership. I don't just say write a post about X. I'll, I'll have several bullets right of my thoughts um, and and what I'll have. AI, AI do is help structure it, you know, okay. and, I, and I'm very specific about the structure that I want. So I'll say, okay, put it in this structure or whatever, 200 words, include, um, you know, anaphora, whatever, blah, 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 hit on these 10 points, right? So I basically almost kind of wrote it. But what AI is doing is, again, just giving me that first draft. From there, I take it into either Notion or Grammarly and, and heavily edit it. You know, that's where I really kind of put, put my personal touch. Back in. Yep, that's right. But this is just saving me an hour um, that it would take to kind of get to that first draft stage. That's amazing. I've been loving using that for writing as well. And I want to talk more about like how you train it to to give you exactly what you need. Like I love that you say the word count and like the topics to touch on. Um, do you ever incorporate things like do you tell it like the tone or yep. what are some other things that you've kind of trained it along the way, especially when you're building on pieces? Because sometimes I've been writing and I I have an iteration and I'm telling it to do something else and kind of really getting it to a point and then taking it to edit. But I'm trying to learn more commands and more things to make it my own. Yeah, no, I think that's so one thing that I that I a tip that I'd like to share with everyone is that um, you can actually tell ChatGPT to create a style guide based on your writing. So, you know, what I've done is is take like say 10 of my most like best performing posts, feed that into ChatGPT and then ask it to create a style guide based on that. And then what I do is I'll save that style guide in Evernote. And then when it gives me that first draft, I'll say, okay, 
edit it based on this style guide. And I'll just copy and paste it right into the window. And then it reformats that into that style guide. So, so that's a good way of kind of like supercharge. I mean, it's still, I still take it and heavily edit it, but now it, it's taking more cues from what I typically, how I typically structure things and how I typically say things and, and you know, all that, you know, how many emojis I use, you know, uh, that it, chat GPT loves emojis and I don't use as many emojis as chat GPT does. Right. So it kind of like mm-hmm. figures out like, oh, don't, don't go crazy with emojis, like four or five, you know, that's it at max. Chat GPT lets you create like a style guide specifically to narrow in on your voice. So you don't have to do this all the time. Like, that's right. That's right. let me write that down. Yeah. <laughs> And another thing I'll say too that that um, is also really helpful with ChatGPT is um, you can then also take some of your best performing posts and then ask it to create a template. You know, I know that there are a lot of creators out there who are selling and, and giving away templates or whatever, but that's in their that's in their style, that's in their voice, right. right? To me, I think it's better to take you know so formats that you say, hey, you know what I think, like say for instance, observation or contrarian view or like something like. Uh, um, you know, maybe inspirational quotes, or like the way that you do it and the way that you would structure it and then create a template. And then what's great about that is that you can then tell ChatGPT based on this template, now write a post that has, that talks about X, <clears throat> you know? Uh, yes, so- you just gave me so many great ideas with that. I'm obsessed. This So this is something that obviously, like you said, you've been refining, you've been having it understand you, you can definitely tell when people haven't done that work. Like you said, there's like no creativity in it. Can we talk about some telltale signs? Like you mentioned emojis. I feel like that's one of the first ways, like, I'm like, you don't talk like that. Like there's certain things that I, I can flag. And I mean, you know, I think especially when you first started off and anybody first started off using chat GPT, like, you know, we all kind of were there with you know, how much of it we were using, but it really takes that extra effort. And that's just one of the ways that it just becomes very obvious aside from just sounding robotic. Yeah, no, you're right. And then it's it's funny, it does this weird kind of ending, kind of like kumbaya endings to things like, so let's all remember to pack our, you know. <laughs> that's the most accurate thing. It does it every time. And I'm like, whoa, like we don't have to go, we don't have to have this come to Jesus moment about no. the content. Yeah, and, 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 and some people do write that way. But most people don't write that way every single post. So when you see that every post, like two, three posts in a row, it's kind of like, yeah, you're, you're just lifting stuff right out of chat GPT, you know? Yeah, it, you can feel you it. You can feel it. You know, I think you, I think you touched on it a few minutes ago. You have to like what you're doing. If you like writing, then enjoy the process of writing, right? I mean, chat GPT is here to help. It's, I always describe it as it's here to help you get past that blank page, right? Yes. But if you if you don't like writing and you and you're tempted because you don't like writing to let chat GPT do all the writing for you, don't write. Right? Don't, don't write. write. Yeah. Don't yeah. write. Just just take your find another format. Find, t- find another format. If you like to speak, just record your thoughts. I mean, how many creators do you see doing a great job just turning the camera on themselves or turning the microphone on and just creating content that way, right? It's incredible. Everybody has their different things that they're good at. So you have to like zone in on, you know, what, what's easy for me. Some people, like you said, the way some people can talk into the camera, a lot of people wish they could. I mean, myself included, I do it, but it's not the most like natural thing for me. But one thing I do feel like is natural for me and I like is I really like a Twitter format. (laughs) And so I decided that one way that I'll get 
you know, more posts on LinkedIn and actually like be motivated to post more on LinkedIn is if I'm kind of shooting off thoughts, like it's Twitter a little bit. So I've been testing things like that out and I do love writing, but I love editing. (laughs) So I'm excited to like really, you know, train my AI to kind of figure out the things I like and the things I don't like. Cause there's a lot of things I don't like that I'm always editing out of that text. And then having, yeah, field day, being able to put my own voice back into it and make it easy. That's really the key, you know, and, and, and it just has to be fun. If it's not fun, if it feels like work, do something else because it's like, you, just like you said, most of what's out there is really just kind of, you know, I call it the sea of sameness. It sounds the same. It looks mm-hmm. the same. There are a ton of creators who are selling templates. So that makes it you know, structured the same and sound the same or whatever. You know, um, at that point, you have to question why you're doing it because it's not going to resonate with your audience. You're not going to get the intended results that you want. You'd, you'd honestly be better off doing something else. Yeah, or just outsource it. You know, I'm getting to the point where I'm just starting to realize some things that I don't want to touch, I just want. Yeah. But another big thing about being a creator is embracing that cringe factor, right? Like you're kind of. Although it's controlled, like, of course, you put out what you want to put out and the the level of vulnerability that you want to put out, but you're still kind of putting out pieces of you on a regular basis. I mean, I see that you post every day and you're sharing these tips and you're commenting. So what's it like being able to kind of like embrace that and just decide that you are now a, a public facing creator? You've stepped from behind the scenes, behind the curtains as a digital pro. Now you are the thought leader. It's always weird because it's always in the back of my <laughs> mind that I shouldn't be doing this. But, yeah. you know, the reaction that I got, because I started out thinking that I would create certain types of content. And then and I think this is the most important thing is that you get feedback and you have to embrace the feedback. And I don't mean feedback in the sense of like somebody sent me a scathing note or criticizing note or whatever, but you start to see that like when I post this content, it does okay. It does pretty well. It does reasonably well. And then when I post this type of content, boom, it explodes. So that's real feedback to say people want more of this than they want of that. They still want that, but they're gravitating more toward this. So you know, I would say, say, for instance, like a lot of the stuff that really resonates in my feed are more inspirational posts that really talk to, to where people are at the moment. You know, I always say that people will follow you if you either educate them, entertain them, empathize with them or make them think. Uh, I think that was a quote from uh, from Justin Welsh, one of the great creators on, on, uh, on LinkedIn and now on some other platforms and everything. So but like clearly sometimes they want more of one of those areas from, from one of us, from us than the others. And I think that like uh, the empathy part, talking to people and tapping into where they are in the moment seems to be something that really resonates with a lot of folks, at least in my feed. Like say, for instance, just yesterday, I did a post about leaders versus micromanagers. And it just, it's still getting a lot of engagement. Uh, it's getting more engagement than the that was. Today. That was a good yeah. one. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it really makes you reflect on, it gets you thinking, like you said, and reflecting on yourself and your experience. Yeah. Everybody's had a micromanaging boss or colleague or so and been made to feel tentative and, and feel like their, their soul was being crushed or, or, you know, autonomy was being taken away and all of those things. So, so it, it tapped into where people were and tapped into how, what people could resonate with their own experiences and everything. And so it did really, really well. Now, of course, it also taps, you know, you also have to think about, so, okay, what am I looking to achieve? 
I still, it's, it's not like that's all I'm going to do because some of the other content that I post, even though it may not get as much engagement as some of those more empathetic posts or, or inspirational posts, they still do perform. People still want to know about AI. They still have a hunger for that. And a lot of times they won't necessarily like or repost or comment, but they'll shoot me a DM or to send me an email and say, hey, can we grab you know time to kind of talk about X or I'd love for you to come speak about that on that topic, et cetera. Most of the time, most of the outreach that I get, those people did not engage with my posts. That's a big one. And I feel like that's another one of the things where you almost like feel like naked in a a crowd of people because you're putting it all out there. You're spending a lot of time and energy on your content. And then sometimes you're seeing that you're not getting the engagement that you're thinking, but people are watching. And I always try to remind my creator friends and clients that I work with that it's kind of like a portfolio of you. Like you're putting in different formats of content, different topics, like you have your content pillars that you're talking about. Not everything's going to be viral, but it's not about that. It's more about putting out these pieces of your story. And like you said, that is way more satisfying to get a DM with an opportunity than than a like technically, you know, so you have to kind of think past that. And the number of likes. I have worked really hard with people to kind of like deconstruct basing value on this number because my favorite example so simple is just like if if 50 people liked your post you're like oh that's nothing like only 50 people liked it but if 50 people were hearing you in a room and like super engaged in what you're saying that feels huge so that's another barrier that I think is, is kind of difficult as a creator. Oh, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I dealt with that, you know, as, like as you did too, you know, before you left the PR world, I, I dealt with that in the agency world all the time because clients would sort of like, okay, what's our, what are our KPIs? How are we going to measure success, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so if they did a couple of posts that didn't perform, they said, well, what's happened? I thought you guys were supposed to be the experts. Why did this post not perform uh, up to expectations? The engagement rate is lower than I expect, et cetera. And it's it's like, first of all, it's an opportunity to learn what your audience wants. This is not pass-fail, right? Second of all, yeah. just, just as you mentioned, it's not all about the, the vanity metrics. You know, that's where I typically try to remind them, hey, we're trying to generate leads, okay? So we're getting people into the funnel. It doesn't matter whether or not they, they press like or they commented or they repost. Yeah, you, you know, those things give you your shot of dopamine, which is we all we all enjoy, right? <laughs> but at the Definitely. end of the day, you've got to stay with the plan, right? You've got to stick with the plan. A lot of those leads, they're not going to necessarily like your posts, they, but they'll show up for the webinar, right? They'll take that next action. They'll, they'll sign up for your newsletter. Uh, they'll download that white paper mm-hmm. and get you get them into the funnel. So you got to stay focused, right? The reason that you're doing it is not necessarily for the likes. Likes are nice. We all like likes. But you're staying top of mind. You're staying visible, right? You're you're becoming mm-hmm. that expert in the feed. And then eventually you'll move them, you know, through the funnel. But, you know, if you get caught up in the vanity metrics, then you can kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. Oh yeah, so distracting. It comes back to that. You have to remember your goal. You have to remember that intentionality and like why you're doing it. Because what about attracting new people along the way? Like you're very visible. I'm using you as an example, of course. Like you're very visible. You're putting out content on a regular basis. You have this 
library of your ideas and content and things that exist. So then when you're out in the world, talking to people, connecting with people, networking, whatever it is, and somebody stumbles upon or comes to your page, you, you're there, you showed up, you've shown up. And I think that's one thing that we also, also have to tell ourselves, like you're, this is kind of a foundation for even like the future. It's not about the right now with the lights. That's right. That's right. And also I think that there are a lot of different reasons why someone or people don't like uh, or engage with content for some people. And, you know, we may feel like it's silly or whatever, but you know, if you like a comment or so it shows up, uh, others can see it. So some people may feel like, well, I already liked a couple of things. I don't want my colleagues to feel like I'm sitting around on social media all day long. Um, right. Other <laughs> yes. people don't want someone so to be accurate. able to go and see what they like. Right. For whatever. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it's silly, maybe it's not, but they, 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 there's a world where people really enjoyed your content and for whatever reason, they didn't like it. And the other thing is that um, all these social networks are constantly updating the algorithms they're constantly making changes. Yes. I hear from and, and see creators on social all the time. That like, oh, you know, my re my organic reach is down. The new algorithm change is really kind of like messing me up and everything. And I get the frustration because there are a lot of people who are running their businesses completely on social media. And so. Which they should, you shouldn't run it just on social media. Discl disclaimer. That's a good point. <laughs> because why? Because algorithm changes could impact you. I, I remember talking to a, a, a friend who's a prominent, uh, ha, ha, makes a lot of money on YouTube. And um, a few years ago, a couple of years ago or so, she was saying that like there were a couple of things that happened uh, and, and it really messed up her business. And she really had to pivot because she wasn't getting as much revenue from YouTube as she was accustomed to. And I think she may have dipped below the, wow. the, the um, monetization threshold or so. So yeah, it was pretty bad. But to your point, yeah, you're right. Like don't put all your eggs in one basket. The algorithm changes or God yeah. forbid you end up in, in LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram jail for a little while. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was such a real thing. Twitter jail or like Instagram going down, which we know it loves to do every so often. So it's important to have those like other things like email lists or just having some other form of connection in some way if it's like running your entire business. Like, of course, we do a lot of our own just like posting and thought leadership on our platforms. Um, but I, but I want to go back to reasons why people don't like your posts really quick, because I think that's so interesting. I'm thinking about the different platforms and what happens. So one, one thing I do want to start off with is I think that a lot of times when you're a creator yourself, you, you think differently about engagement. So I engage with a lot of content because I see that you're putting in the work and I see, of course, I probably like your content, but it's coming from a place of like knowing what went into this post and like what you're doing and trying to like support and encourage. So I think that creators kind of see it different. Whereas if you don't spend that much time like putting out content, you're not really thinking like, oh, I didn't like that. Like you're not really as hyper aware. Um, and then another layer of that is like you said, LinkedIn's telling you like you're telling people your engagement. So you're feeling a little exposed. TikTok is changing your algorithm based on everything that you like. So there might be some creators that I think their content made me laugh or is cool. And I want to, I'll like it usually or save it or something like that. But I might be a little stingier with my likes because I don't want that specific topic in my feed all the yep. time. And then Twitter, you can see people's likes. Like, so all these things, like there's a lot of, those pitfalls that kind of keeps people from engagement, which is why we shouldn't obsess over engagement because it's about 
what you're putting out, not what you're getting back. One hundred percent. One, yeah, and you're right. You do see it differently when you start creating on your own and you start learning things like, you know, how the algorithm works. Like, uh, like sometimes if I see someone who posted something, like say thirty minutes ago, and it's a really, really good post, and I know they spent a lot of time on it, and they've only got like say two likes, and I know that you know, you know, LinkedIn there's that golden ninety minutes. It used to be the golden hour, now it's golden ninety minutes. Where if you get a, a good amount of engagement on your post within that ninety minutes, the algorithm. Will, will then start to sort of amplify it outside of your inner circle. So I'll say, mm, you know what, let me, let me, let me just like Tiff's post, you know, make sure, let me yeah, go, let me go ahead and like, like it. Let yeah, me, help let me them give out. a comment or so, because we've all been there. Um, so you're right, you do mm-hmm. think differently about it, but also the way the algorithm works is that I usually schedule my posts to, to, uh, to go live at like 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So the way the algorithm works now is that if you're engaging before, like if I'm engaging around 8.15, commenting on other people's posts, uh, doing things like that, liking and sharing, all that kind of stuff, by 8.30, it benefits the algorithm, you know, the algorithm will benefit my post because I'm being active, et cetera. And so then my post will get shared to more people. But also on top of that, I'm liking people's stuff. They're they're thankful. They're, hey, oh man, I really appreciate Chris commenting on my post. They're more likely to reciprocate. Oh, Chris's post just went up. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm going to reciprocate. I'm going to like it. I'm going to share, repost it, whatever. It's the algorithm and the community that really kind of helps to kind of propel that forward. So, you know, there are a lot of different reasons. I think when you're right, when you're in that in the shoes as a creator, where you do kind of tend to look at things a little differently, you're more strategic, you know how things mm-hmm. work. You're not necessarily as miserly, but yeah, before I was doing that, I also was very sort of like sparing about, hey, I'm, you know, manicuring my my feed. Uh, I, I like yes. this, but I don't want to like it's it real. because I want to see more of that showing up. <laughs> yeah. And, and like like you said, you have to give back to it, too. Like engagement is so important. And like, obviously, because people do reciprocate and that's amazing. But also just to like join these conversations that you are having yourself, like no one likes someone who's just shouting into the void. Like, are we having a conversation or are you yelling at me? And that's the most, <laughs> are you just talking at the that's wall? That's the most important thing. Like I've worked with so many executives where they're like, okay, but how can we get me from 2000 to 10,000 uh, followers? And it, you have to think, and you have to think about it from that perspective. Like it's okay. You're building a community. Okay. Part of how you're going to do that, we're going to build a strategy that's going to get you exposure and get you more eyeballs and whatever and get you engagement and, and help you put you in a position to get more followers. And it's going to work because we've done it a number of times. But how many how many creators have you seen who have huge numbers of followers, but very low engagement, right? All, All the, time. the time, especially like the earlier like batch of influencers when the algorithm was a little different and A lot of people also were buying followers at one point and somebody has, you know, 50,000 followers, but their posts get about 10 likes, like the math ain't math. And so you see that the engagement's not there. That's right. So it's got to be a real community. And, you know, what I've told executives is, look, don't worry about it, especially given what they're usually trying to achieve. I usually say rather than have 50,000 followers who don't care, you know, couldn't give a crap about what you're posting. You, you'd be better off having five to six or 7,000 who, who are really engaged, right? The minute you post, they're sitting there waiting. Like, oh, Chris usually posts around 8.30 and it's 8.25. Well, let me get my coffee, right? That's what you want, right? Yeah. Because those people are going to buy from you. They're going to share your content. They're going to support you. They're going to support whatever it is that you do. 
as opposed to, to your point, if you just kind of like post and ghost, right? Here I go. I'm posting and put this out there. You guys are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. Bye. Which is like, you know, people do that, but it's nice to be able to feel like you're hanging out online. Like that's part of my, Hey, that's part of my morning routine. I sit down and open up LinkedIn. There you are, Chris. Like there's like those top voices that I love to kind of like see, engage with, think about, and you, and you feel like you're hanging out with your friend just in your own feed. And that's something that that's how you know that you're in a good place rather than, yeah, having a bunch of followers and you're not getting anything back. But in terms of somebody who is just starting out like that, like you and I both talk to a lot of thought, uh, you know, a lot of executives who want to be thought leaders or even creators who are really establishing their personal brand more. So getting started with that, what is kind of like one or a couple of your favorite tips for going from zero, starting from scratch and and trying to be present specifically on LinkedIn? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I would typically always in the past, well, even today, recommend a crawl, walk, run strategy, right? Because I think we talked about a little while ago that like a lot of people get started and then they flame out really quickly. And in many of those cases, it's because they try to do too much too soon. Right. You know, a lot of times I'll talk to executives and like, okay, so I want to get me out on like uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, uh, Medium, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, let's, let's, you're doing too much. much. Let's start small. (laughs) You can graduate to that stuff, but let's get you consistent. I think the main thing is, is building a consistency. Right. So start on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I usually recommend starting on LinkedIn because, as you know, Twitter, like you've got to be more active if you're going to get visibility. You've got to post more frequently. And if you're not accustomed to, and you don't have a process for consistently creating content, it's not going to work. You're going to flame out. So with 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 LinkedIn, I mean, really, it's, it's counterproductive in many cases, not all, but in many cases to post more than once a day, right? And you can gain a lot of traction just by posting once, twice a week, right? If they're yeah. quality posts. So typically I say start with small and build a consistency and build that and, and get, allow that process to build up, right? And then you're also learning, just as I was saying a few minutes ago, what, what, what does my audience want from me, right? Yeah. So as you kind of get going, you start to build momentum, you start to build confidence, you, you really kind of get your voice. And then as you start doing that, you can increase your frequency. Um, so I usually say start small and you just have to be patient, right? Um, because it just takes time. The biggest it one. just takes time and, and you learn you, you have to enjoy the journey and enjoy and embrace what you're learning along the way and also like you mentioned it's a social network so you're going to meet people you know someone who supports your content a lot dm that person and thank them right ask them how you can support them and so i think as you True. start doing it more and more and more then you can start to say you can graduate to another social network because once you've got like a year under your belt on linkedin guess what you want to graduate to Twitter or X, you know, or whatever we're calling it. I, I'm not, I'm just calling no. it Twitter. I'm calling it Twitter. <laughs> you want to graduate to Twitter. Now you have a, a bank of content, much of which you know works. And you can look at that content and figure out how you can repurpose it for Twitter, right? Or another platform, yes. right? So Amen. It's, Say that. it's a lot easier to manage two platforms once you built that consistency and that process for creating content on one. So start small. Be consistent and be patient. 
Oh, I love that. There's so many, so many gems in that. And one thing that I particularly love is the repurposing because you don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. And I think we all kind of do it at some point, of course, because like you said, you might get to that point where you're stuck and you're like, oh, I need to come up with some ideas. And you're like racking your brain. You're like looking for inspiration when your inspiration should be yourself and like things that you've already posted, like really kind of like be your own muse in that way. And I've done that where I've kind of gone back and reflected on things that I've posted or written and have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to talk about that a lot. Like, you know, what? I'm going to I'm going to make a post about that again, turning reels into posts, vice versa, like just taking that content and thinking about how you can break it down is a great way to kind of get past like a, a, a hump or a, or a creative block, in my opinion. How do you repurpose your stuff? Well, I, I try to, you know, templates, I try to templatize myself, right? You know, not, I don't use right. other creators yeah. templates. I use my, I create my own templates with ChatGPT. Same thing, like you mentioned, I try to mix up formats. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of carousels on LinkedIn. Yeah. They look really good. Thank you. Thank I want to like start, I want to start doing that. Just, I want to try it out. It looks really cool when you do that. And it's visual. I love visual things. Well, it's the designer in me, you know, I got, I have to yes. like beat that piece <laughs> from time to time. So um, I love those sort of carousels, but sometimes I'll sort of repurpose and say, you know what, I can, uh, this work well as a carousel, maybe see if I can kind of like change this format up and do it as a text post with just an image or something like that. So mixing up the formats or even like, uh, Hey, you know, uh, maybe this is a, a good material for a 30, 45 second video. So just kind of mixing up the formats, because I think that a lot of us fall into a trap of thinking, oh, I posted that three, four months ago. Everybody already saw it. No, they did not. You know, they didn't. Yes. <laughs> Bring it back, sis. Bring it back. Like, try it again. Like, put a little spin on it. Remix it. I can't remember. So true. I can't remember which, which one it was, but one of the big creators that I follow, like in the past couple of weeks or so, did a post on that. Like. They, I, I can't. He, he said, like, I posted this post three months ago, and he posted it again recently, and both times it got enormous engagement. Same audience, right? Yes. So, and and nobody, nobody said remembers. Nobody remember, or or or, or <laughs> most people probably most people in even in his uh, following and network didn't see it because only a percentage right. of people are gonna engage or even see the posts, right? So it could right. be that he got to a completely different portion of his follower base than he did the first time he posted that. Uh, and it was great content. So, you know, I think you're right. Why, why rack your brain all the time trying to figure out net brand new things to post when reality is, again, people want certain things from you. And sometimes, sometimes, look, most times, uh, the best quotes or advice or anecdotes or stories, we like to hear them over and over and over again. You don't listen to your favorite song once, right? Chances are, you, you you know, your favorite movie, you know, that's this is always the funniest thing with me. It's like, if I'm getting ready to go to bed and one of my favorite movies is on, you know, I'm like, oh, I got to stay and watch the rest of it, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, so, yes. Even though you know what to expect. And uh, sometimes yeah. you catch different things when you reread that's things, right. rewatch things, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So, you know, don't we should not be afraid of repetition. We should not be afraid of like, if this is great content, repurpose it. And, and sometimes we can just repost it the same way that we did before, or sometimes we just find a different way to package it. Because the other thing too, is that people's consumption habits and preferences are different. Some people, it's funny, like sometimes, a lot of times when I do a carousel, I'll kind of summarize what's in the carousel in the text of the post. And there are people who just read, read the text and don't look at the carousel. 
There are people who look at the carousel and don't read the post. So I don't really That's care. So true. Yeah. I definitely do that sometimes. Yeah. But it's good to have both there for whoever, yes. you know, sometimes people have a video and there's like almost no caption. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't have time to sit here and watch the video. But if they have the caption or captions on the video, it's helping me. It's helping me get there. Like right. now I'm going to indulge your content. So there should be things to help you. Ooh, that's such a gem. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, speaking of like repurposing things, one I have to tell you, Chris, one time I repurposed the exact same video on the exact same day in a different year. And both times it got great engagement. The second time it had even better engagement. So there's a sound that came out on, uh, it was for National Coffee Day. And the sound was kind of like a funny sound. Like it, it <laughs> and I basically had a video of me like making a cup of coffee to this sound that was already kind of circulating at the time. I think that was like one of the, when it first came out. Yeah. So that video, blew up got a lot of great engagement like got had engagement for for weeks even months and because it did so well the next national coffee day i used the same sound did it again with a different video of me making coffee same thing same thing happened like it blew up again and i just thought that was funny because i'm like i knew it worked that time i i did the same thing i re i remixed it a little bit but i did the same thing and no one's gonna you know it's not, it's, it's not a big deal. Some people didn't even see it before. Obviously I'm reaching an entirely new audience again. Yeah. And that sound started trending again. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, but you, you do great work with your editing and, 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 you know, content and even the sounds and the, Thank and the you. audio that you choose is, all, you know, really spot on and, and works really well with the visuals and everything. So there's no surprise, but that's all part Thank of the you. process, right? It's like really understanding it that. Is. Uh, you know, I thank you for pointing that out because I, you have to incorporate things that you like, like you said, so it's not work, right? Or just even to put your own spin on it, your, make it your brand. And I love music. I love making playlists. I love music. Like there's so many artists that I'm really into and I love to incorporate like music or a certain lyrics that I like into the vibe of my content. It's things I'm like currently listening to, or especially with main character energy. Like I'll add a new song to my main character energy playlist on Spotify. I'll link it in the show notes that I feel like matches the vibe of the episode. So I'll have to find one that's a little bit about reinvention, a good one that I've been listening to that I'll add for this one. Nice. But speaking of branding and reinventing yourself, I really, before we go, want to get your thoughts on a few rebrand fails. I feel like some brands are definitely in their flop era. <laughs> and I want to start off with the elephant in the room, Twitter, also known as X, whatever's happening there, it feels like a big fail. I mean, for one, we all are calling it Twitter, but I guess like professionally, editorially, things like that, like it's X. So there's a complete divide in that. What a fail. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and the thing is that, that there was so much equity built up in Twitter. Your content is tweets, right? So like what... What are you calling them now? X's, you know, and then also X it's so bad. It's so bad. And then also X has negative connotations um, in, in, in our society, right? Uh, on a number of levels. So as, as someone who worked in the agency world and where we would a lot of times advise companies through these types of rebrands and raise a lot of these types of considerations in the process of coming up with the right rebrand strategy, 
it just felt very rushed. It felt very clumsy. It felt very ill-considered. And quite frankly, it felt very, very much like this is just what Elon wanted to do because um, that this, just well, this, but also it's a through line for him, like his, his other company, I mean, everybody knows Tesla, but his, his other company, SpaceX, right? The company he sold to PayPal, X.com. So this has been, I don't know, idiosyncrasy of his for a long time. And it was, I guess it was just a matter of time after he bought Twitter that he was going to do this. And it, look, it's his company. He can do whatever he wants, but it just felt like given some of the headwinds he was already facing with the company probably wasn't something they needed right now. No. And, and that part, and you can't tell this man shit. Like <laughs> you are the branding expert when you're advising clients, you're, you guys are like, Hey, now, you know, people don't always take experts advice. I will say that's, that's a thing, but, <laughs> but obviously you're there and the support is there to make sure that there's, you know, not these issues or I'm thinking, I even think about when, um, Kim Kardashian skims line was originally going to be called kimono mm-hmm. and, just the fact that they had to kind of pivot from that because of obviously the cultural references and just considering that. So they, at least they took that into consideration, of course, but, but a lot of times when there's not someone in the room, yep. we can have a whole other episode <laughs> on that, but when there's not somebody in the room to kind of raise those flags then it gets messy, but obviously we know that at Twitter, everyone isn't there. So it seems like he's just doing what he wants to do. So I, it, it's, it makes me a little bit sad because I, I do, I love Twitter. I'm really hoping that they are not going to put up a paywall for every user because I've honestly, Chris, I've been on that platform for 15 years, which is insane, but it, it did feel clumsy. It just felt kind of disappointing. And one other thing I do want to mention is the fact that tweet was so embedded you touched on that tweet was so embedded in the name that when someone's tweeting about someone, we would call it a subtweet. When you're sharing it, it's a retweet. And then the most ironic thing of all is like when you are right, when you're posting a series of tweets, it's called a thread. And then Instagram came out with threads. I was like, what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of cultural language. You know, and of course, that's essential in building a following, right? And the movement is that language inside baseball that now I don't know if he's going to change it or if he's just going to leave it or whatever. But I think you're right. I think that um, editorially people will go by X and what have you. But in reality, day to day, people call it Twitter. So I don't know how effective it was. You can't erase Twitter and you can't erase black Twitter. And I'll leave it at that. It's so embedded in the culture. We can't forget about all the times that we, as a family, watched TGIT together <laughs> on the timeline. Yeah. It, it'll always be Twitter. It'll always be Black Twitter to me. I'd like to move on now to our friends at HBO. What happened, Chris? Oh, man. Uh, you know, what was I, that? I, I wasn't there and I didn't have them as a client, full disclosure, <laughs> so, so I can't say. My guess is that, it, I don't know, that fe- it felt to me a little different than Elon because you don't have just one person making all the decisions, but it felt to me like focus groups gone wrong or insight testing gone wrong, right? Where you say, Oh, there's this much equity or we've this, we've got this reaction from these focus groups or these tests that say that we should go with max and just drop the HBO part. But I don't know. Again, similarly, and I'm not one that says you should never change your name. You should never rebrand. Sure. Sure. It happens. You have to, you, 
you you have to kind of keep up with the times or reinvent based on the audience or whatever it may yeah. be mergers yeah. we we obviously know there's a merger involved yeah. yeah and you know i think that there is there there's plenty of history of great successful rebrands and renames but you know hbo is one of the most iconic and successful entertainment brands and yeah i just don't know that max carries the same cachet, nor do I think that if ultimately, you know, look, they're trying to do like a lot of uh, companies, which is appeal to a younger audience who isn't, who's trying to cut cords, you know, and, and quite frankly, cut costs, entertainment costs, right? I'm sure. not sure that that really ticks any of those boxes. So it was curious to me. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how it's going to go. Maybe they'll prove us wrong. Maybe it's going to really do well. But um, it just seemed like one of those things where I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they go back to HBO at some point. <gasps> that would be amazing. Do you think that could happen? I don't know, but you know. <laughs> Have people done that? Oh, yeah. Are there any examples of people kind of going back on a name? Well, I mean, not just a name, but you know, I know we're going back a little ways now, but like uh, there was a, there was a t- you know, you remember, you, you remember reading, I'm sure in school about the new Coke uh, situation, right? <laughs> Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it took it took sure. a, it had to have taken a lot to just admit your mistake. Hey, look, we changed the formula, we got that wrong. We changed the branding, we got that wrong. And people loved the old Coke. They loved the old the taste of it. They loved the branding. Why don't we go back? Yeah. You know. So I, yeah, you, know, you have to admit when you're wrong sometimes. I, I I do think you have to take chances sometimes, right? Um, so I'm not saying just stay with the old and, and never innovate and never change. Sure. But I think you have to yeah. be secure enough to say, oof, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, like, let's let's be real. We want HBO back. I think I, I, I'm going to go ahead and just speak on behalf of everybody. We want HBO back. I went to go tag HBO because I was posting something about Issa Rae and Insecure. I went to go tag. It's not there. I'm like, there's no HBO tag. My mind's not going to max. Even, you know, visually, again, a visual person, and thinking about, like, UX and stuff. When I turn on my TV and I want to go watch Sex in the City, I'm looking for that app. Like I passed Max like three times because in my mind, I'm looking for the purple, you know, or the black or the purple. Like I'm looking for that branding as well. So, and when I think about, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a thumbs down. And when I think about, when I think about Max, when you say Max, I think about TJ Max. True, Maxinista. I think about Cinemax. Uh, I mean, which is obviously yeah. like part of the merger, but like my mind goes straight to Cinemax. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking you're talking about Cinemax. Yeah, yeah. No, that's I, you know what's funny. Even with the merger, I hadn't thought about like because because like you're right. You always said Cinemax. You never call Cinemax Max, right? Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna watch. Turn on, let's turn on Max. So it'd be one thing. Oh God. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It'd be one thing if 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 that was a thing. Like say for instance, like you know. A company like say uh, FedEx. FedEx stands for Federal Express. But years ago they said, "Hey, you know, nobody wants to say that mouthful," and everybody called it FedEx anyway. So they just say, "Hey, let's just make the nickname the name, True. right?" So you know, yeah. I think that like uh, if there was that legacy of people calling Cinemax Max, and now you've got this merger and everything, and say, "Okay, you know what? Let's just rebrand this as Max because it's already out there, right?" But that would make sense. Not really, but. Yeah, that did not happen. HBO is so iconic. I think it's just like Twitter where we are going to keep calling it HBO regardless. Um, another example that you remind me of with FedEx is Dunkin'. Yeah. Everyone says Dunkin'. No one says Dunkin' Donuts. They're like, oh, I'm going to yeah. Dunkin'. So they took the donuts yeah. off. That's right. 
Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. You know, so so there it made sense and it was grounded in, in a lot of insights and user behavior. You know, the people that, who who are it felt like Twitter with that rebrand and it felt like with Max with that rebrand, they didn't really really take the consumer into account, right? I and that that's really I think the failing. Now again, they both might prove us wrong, but I don't know. I have my doubts. <sighs> well, for now. Twitter, HBO, I'm formally requesting that and manifesting that y'all just go back to what we know and love. And regardless, I'm going to call you what your mama called you. <laughs> mama called a play, I'm going to call a play. <laughs> exactly. So on that note, thank you so much, Chris. This is an amazing conversation. So many gems, especially for content creators and anybody who just, you know, loves to, you know, wants to elevate themselves and wants to kind of show up more online. So we're going to include your information in the show notes, but go ahead and tell us where we can find you. Yeah, I'd say mostly you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. That's the platform I'm most active on. So Chris G. And then also just a tiny little plug, you know, obviously because I've been doing so much uh, content around AI, uh, particularly in the communication space. A couple of people gave me the idea and I did a couple of like recording sessions with a couple of people. So I'm going to launch a new podcast in the next week called The Intelligent Creator, AI. Oh my Intelligence, God. Right? So it'll be the first conversation um, that I did with Roberto Munoz, uh, who's also a fantastic creator on, on LinkedIn. I met on LinkedIn and everything. And we're talking about communication in the age of AI and all these other issues. Um, but I plan to talk with other folks and have other interviews, et cetera. So I'm just kind of putting the finishing touches on the first episode now, going to hopefully have it up uh, by Monday. Uh, and then I'm looking to do maybe like two two conversations a month. That's amazing. You are on a roll with your content and it makes you're leaning into what people want to hear more about. You're definitely leading the charge on that conversation in our industry. So I wish you the most success. Also, I saw that you are, you know, bidding for South by Southwest and speaking there on some of these things. And I hope there's many more, you know, opportunities like that where you can continue to share your story and your content and your amazing ideas. I've always been super inspired by you. I appreciate you pouring into me and I'm glad that we're on a creator journey together. That's kind of fun. And I love that for us. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for being such an inspiration, you know, for I'm sure anybody listening or watching this podcast knows your story and your journey. But, you know, I from where I sat, it took a lot of guts for you to say this job, this industry um, is not giving me joy and I'm not being fulfilled. And I'm going to take a leap of faith and bet on myself and do what I love full time. And here you are years later super successful at it and doing really amazing things. So kudos to you. Got to give you your flowers as well. Thank you, Chris. I'm black girl blushing and the feeling is mutual. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Main Character Energy. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow on social at Tiff or Die and Main Character Energy Pod to access exclusive content and get a behind the scenes look as well as resources to help you become that bitch. See you next week.